Are you ever curious what's going on behind the scenes in Hollywood? You watch a Netflix show or a Marvel movie and you wonder, why was that person in it? Why did this movie get made? I'm Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News, and I'm covering the inside conversation about money and power in Hollywood. With my new show, The Town, on the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm going to take you inside Hollywood with exclusive insight on what people in show business are actually talking about. Multiple times a week, we're going to bring you short, digestible episodes featuring some of the smartest people I know breaking down the hottest topics in entertainment to tell you what's really going on. Follow The Town now and listen on Spotify. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC, or as a statement credit. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Hello and welcome back into the Prestige TV podcast feed. I'm Joanna Robinson and joining me, fresh from... Escaping near death in the desert, I believe. It's Ben Lindbergh. Hi, Ben. Ah, <laughs> oh, Joanna, hello. I am so excited for Sal season. It's, it's great to be back in Albuquerque. Oh, my e- gosh. Even better to be here with you. We've got a lot to discuss. Sal spring and then to be followed by Sal summer. Uh, it's just it's, <laughs> it's a great time to be a Sal fan. So I just want to break down a little bit. Well, first of all, Prestige TV program reminders, just so you guys know, there's so much going on in the feed. There's We Crash, there's Atlanta, there's Winning Time. Uh, I believe we'll be launching a Barry Watch Along uh, podcast also. So there's a lot to check in on. But the reason why we decided to do Better Call Saul alongside what Chris and Andy are doing over on The Watch with Better Call Saul is that it's like the final season of this huge show, a show that we love dearly, and we feel like it's worth the double breakdown. So what Chris and Andy are going to be doing every Monday night is sort of like an instant reaction. God willing, in the AMC screener stream, uh, don't rise. They will be doing here every Monday night with like a, an instant reaction. And then Ben and I will have the advantage of like a couple days of like reading cast interviews and reading Reddit theories and whatever it is to give us a little bit more of a breakdown. Are you a theory person, Ben? I am, although with this show in particular, it could go a couple different ways. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, I feel like no matter how much I think about this show, Gilligan and Gould will outthink me. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I, I almost just concede from the start that I can't keep up with them. On the other hand, this is a show that really rewards that sort of speculation, I think, because it's not going to be one of those series where you get to the end and you realize that, oh, I gave this series too much credit. I was digging too deep into this thing. Right. It always goes deeper than you are going to go. So I have no anticipation, no expectation that I can keep up with the twists and turns of this plot. But in a way, when you invest in it that way and you think about it and yet you still can't foresee what's coming, I think that just makes it all the more impressive. It's fun to try. It's really fun to try. This final season, as Chris and I mentioned on The Watch, is going to be broken down into two chunks. We've got seven episodes running between now and May 23rd. So this is Saul Spring. And then Summer of Saul kicks off in July, uh, July 11th through August 15th. So uh, we will have... 
a little bit more time left with these characters that we love so much. But not too long. And I'm so glad that it won't be a long wait because I can't take a longer wait than this. I mean, the last season of Breaking Bad was really two seasons separated by a year, right? This is less than a two-month hiatus here, which is about what my blood time pressure can tolerate. (laughs) Like, my nightstand's going to look like Saul in the opening sequence here with a bunch of blood pressure medication. So... (laughs) Let's let's get it over with before I collapse. What's your tie collection like? Is, is it equally <laughs> it is, impressive? It, it's more like the monochromatic ties that you see at the start of that sequence <laughs> than than the Technicolor dream coat that comes later. <laughs> All right, so we're going to be starting here with two episodes because AMC and their wisdom dropped two episodes to start with. We're doing episode one, Wine and Roses, directed by Michael Morris and uh, written by Peter Gould, co-creator of the series, uh, and Carrot and Stick, directed by the other co-creator of the series, Vince Gilligan. Uh, written by Thomas Schnauz and Ariel Levine. Um, something that I was talking to Chris a little bit about, we didn't dig too much into it, but you know, the pattern that we've noticed so far with the episode titles this season is that it's like an X and Y construction, right. wine and roses, carrot and stick. We know the names of episodes three and four, rock and hard place, hit and run. Do you have any thoughts or theories about this particular naming construction? Yeah, you know, in season one, almost every episode title was one word that ended in O, which was a pattern, but wasn't necessarily like the secret code that explained Better Call Saul. Then again, in season two, the first letter of each episode title spelled out Fring's back, right? So they Mm -hmm. could be sending us some sort of message here. If anything, maybe this structure to me mirrors just the dualities at the center of the series. I mean... Kevin calls Jimmy two-faced in the country club scene in the premiere, but who isn't two-faced in this series? It's Jimmy and Saul. It's Kim, whose face is literally bisected by shadow in the restaurant scene. It's Mike the killer and Mike the kindly pop-pop. It's like (laughs) Gus, Gus the chicken man, Gus the ruthless drug dealer, you know, Lalo, the smiling, easygoing guy, and Lalo, the killer with no conscience, or, or Nacho, the loyal lieutenant and dutiful son, and Nacho, the drug dealer and traitor. So maybe the structure of the episode titles echoes that, though I think a lot of this season will be about our characters kind of picking a lane, right? I mean, by the end of the season, it's not going to be Jimmy and Saul, but presumably Jimmy or Saul, and we've seen Breaking Bad, so we we know which one it's heading toward. Yeah. Yeah. There's this thought, you know, you start to think about like what other and episodes might be called. Chris Mm -hmm. floated the idea of Walt and Jesse. We'll talk about that in a second. Wolves and Sheep is something obviously that gets play at the end of this episode that could show up. Um, I also like this idea that it might turn into like verses Mm -hmm. uh, in the second part of the season. Um, There was already a season five, episode six episode Wexler versus Goodman, but what if we get Wexler versus McGill or McGill versus Goodman or, you know, whatever it is uh, as it all breaks down. Gene, Gene versus Saul, who knows? Who knows if we're spending more time in the Cinnabon this season? We don't know. Oh, I think we will. I want to ask you about the, we understand completely what the title Carrot and Stick means in episode two. It's explicitly shouted out in the way that they deal with the Kettlemans. Right. And, and not just the Kettlemans, by the way, right? It's kind of a, a recurring theme throughout the episode. You have Mike with Nacho's ladies friends, right? Like, take the money in the next five seconds or you're out of luck or Gus with Nacho, right? Do you want to help him out 
or use his father as leverage. So consistent, some sort of, a, and, and usually it ends up being the stick, but not in every case. Carrots and sticks for everyone, well, sticks for everyone, I guess. But for Wine and Roses, obviously the track Wine and Roses opens the episode. There's a couple implications of that phrase, Wine and Roses, day to, Days of Wine and Roses, meaning like Days of Opulence, but also, you know, an allusion to the famous film Wine and Roses, which is about, you know, alcohol addiction um, and, and sort of lost weekends. So do you have any thoughts or theories about why they went with that name? Yeah, there could be multiple layers to it, but I, I think it is a pretty explicit reference to that film. And, and the creators have shouted that out as being an influence in the writer's room. And I mean, you can see why, right? Because it's a tragic romance between two characters, you know, star-crossed lovers, Joe and Kirsten, mm, J and K, mm-hmm. right? Just like Jimmy and Kim. He's a drinker who introduces her to drinking. She has an addictive personality and she can't kick the habit. And then she's the one who spirals while he reforms, which is sort of what seems to be happening with Kim and Jimmy right now. So it seems like it is uh, pretty clearly an ode to that. And so maybe that movie is a clue for anyone who is doing theories. Go back, watch that film. (laughs) Maybe there will be something there. I I love that. I think I'm going to like hang up this call and go watch the film immediately. So... You know, in terms of that addictive personality question, Kim, as we know from Kim Flashbacks, is the daughter of an alcoholic. This idea that Kim at the end of, I mean, kind of throughout, but specifically at the end of season five, that addiction to the grift is something that we're seeing blossoming Mm -hmm. in her. Chuck in an earlier season also pointed, he called Jimmy an alcoholic. He said, you're my brother and I love you, but you're like an alcoholic who refuses to admit he's got a problem, meaning his addiction to the grift, I think. And so Mm -hmm. I'm worried for everyone all the time on this show, but I'm very worried for Kim. And I think that's a great, a great shout out to that. Right. Yeah. Plus the significance of the tequila to their relationship, right? It's a a night of drinking that kind of allows them to unlock their true natures, or at least Kim's, and lets them take their romance to a new level. So drinking has been sort of central to them. That's not really their main addiction, but it has helped enable their addiction. Let's talk about that for a second. We're going to... We have an email address, kimwexlerlives at gmail.com that I can send emails to. We've already gotten a, a bunch of like really great, fun and interesting emails. We're going to address them throughout. But let's start with one from Stephen here to talk about that tequila bottle top. Stephen says, and this is in reference kind of to a conversation Chris and I had about the house that opens the episode. Who, When it's obviously Saul slash Jimmy's house. Is it also Kim's house? Right. When... When did this happen that we're watching? We're, we're intentionally kept in the dark about that. So Stephen wrote, I think the opening was probably a contracted mover packing seized aff- assets after government agents have taken all their evidence. In Breaking Bad, Saul is in a sleazy little office not befitting someone living like that. Given nothing female except the stray panties is in the house, I'm guessing that scene happens after whatever befalls Kim and before Breaking Bad. Betsy Kettleman saying that they lost everything and Kim telling her she has no idea feels like a pretty big foreshadow. And of course, the big moment at the end of that sequence is... The tequila bottle top um, in the gutter, a very sort of like Rosebud Citizen Kane moment of the snow snow globe falling to the ground. This one small item that carries so much weight and meaning, a reminder of simpler times, etc. We see this bottle top that Kim has kept as a memento of the first grift that she did, the first con that she did with 
with Jimmy. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think? When when did this all take place? When is that house being gutted? Yeah, I mean, it's got to be Breaking Bad, end of Breaking Bad, sort of a, a repo scenario, you know, just seizing all of Saul's assets, as Stephen suggested, I would think. The thing about Saul in Breaking Bad is that we knew almost nothing about his home yeah. or his home life. Like, he, he could have been going home to Kim every night, for all we know, right? But this sequence sort of depresses me because it suggests that there's very little of Jimmy left at this stage. Like, the office, the car, the suits, that's the exterior. Like, that's the facade. That's the image that Jimmy is projecting yeah. to the world. But if his home looks like this... It suggests that that's just who he is. That's who he is on the inside now. He's lost whatever element of Jimmy remained, and yet he was hanging on to the tequila topper. Now, he didn't take it with him. You know, Gene Takovic has the Better Call Saul commercials, right, that (laughs) he watches on those snowy nights. But he left the tequila topper, which suggests, you know, he was hanging on to some vestige of who he used to be and the significance that Kim had to him but that he's not taking that with him. And I got to think that Kim was not with him in this house because, I mean, I know that she sort of steals Saul's style in this episode, which we can talk about, but I give her too much credit as an interior designer. I mean, her taste is too good for her to live in a house, in a house with a gold-plated toilet. Yeah, not to mention <laughs> the underwear. I just really don't think that's Kim underwear for yeah. sure. The, there's another theory that this, you know, because there are a couple years between where we are in if if the timeline is to be believed. There's a couple years right. between where we are in Saul right now. It's like four years, isn't it? Right? As, as best as we can tell, which I know it's all murky. But I mean, but... I, a lot could happen. And there is a, there is a prevalent theory that um, this house seizure happens between Saul and ba- and Breaking Bad. Mm. That like maybe he and Kim get the Sandpiper money. We're going to talk about all this in a second. But like get the Sandpiper money, you know, are living large. And then something happens whether it's a divorce, whether it's a, you know, whatever it is, something happens that turns Jimmy into Saul uh, irrevocably. And, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's where the seizure comes into effect. I'm still leaning towards end of Breaking Bad post post uh, mm-hmm. Saul exit from Albuquerque. But but we shall see. We shall see. I love I want to shout out. You already mentioned the monochromatic ties, but I love how that sequence opens with the monochromatic ties making yeah. us think it's another black and white sequence before they turn more and more colorful and we and we figure out we're in our first color opening for a Saul episode. Right. And you got to think, I mean, unless they have another spinoff in them, which yeah. I wouldn't put it past them, but this could be the last word on the Gilligan verse, right? I mean, we've been living in this world for almost 15 years at this point between Breaking Bad and El Camino and Better Call Saul. So this is going to be the last word, at least in terms of the real world timeline. You would think it might also be the last world in ter- the last word in terms of the timeline of Albuquerque of these characters that we care about. And so, if we are going to jump ahead to Gene Takovic and beyond, then you would think that they're going to get us used to this time frame. And you know, you saw in the scene a, a shot of H.G. Wells' right. The Time Machine, right? Which Saul slash Jimmy is also reading in one of these early season six episodes. So there's going to be a lot of timeline hopping, I would think, at various points in this season. But also this idea of like, take me back to when I had a soul or I had Kim or whatever it is that he lost. Yeah, like those those simple, innocent times of <laughs> early Better Call Saul. Of this show. Yeah. <laughs> 
so innocent. Slipping Jimmy, you know. Yeah, exactly. The other thing we want to talk about, sort of like a bigger picture thing before we get into, we're going to break down the episode character by character. But um, this whole new, the Jesse Walt news, I haven't had a chance to talk to you, Ben, about this. But this idea that Peter Gould at Paley yeah. Fest just came out and was like, guess what? I'm not going to try to hide it from you. We're not going to make Aaron Paul do an Andrew Garfield. Like, Walt and Jesse are in the show. It's happening. Aaron Paul was surprised. Mm-hmm. He told THR that he was surprised that they announced he thought he was going to have to keep the secret, but he was delighted that it was out there so that he could talk about it. Obviously, he's not, they're not talking details. But he said, I'm excited that we did and how we did. And I think people are going to be thrilled about it. I mean, what else is he going to say? People are going to be disappointed. But do you have any thoughts or feelings about Walt and Jesse being in the season and about how you how much or how little you would want to see of them? With any other series, I might have some misgivings about this because Mm -hmm. I don't need Walt and Jesse to swoop in like Luke Skywalker saving Baby Yoda, you know, like, (laughs) or to stick Uh with Star Wars, which is on brand for me. I I also don't need Better Call Saul to hand off to Breaking Bad directly the way that someone hands the Death Star plans to CGI Carrie Fisher at the end of Rogue One, (laughs) right? Like, Uh uh despite all the connective tissue between these two series, Better Call Saul stands on its own which is an incredible accomplishment and something I really value about this series. And so I would hate for this to be about, you know, oh, the whole reason we were watching this is to just sort of set up Breaking Bad. It's more than that, right? It's its own thing. And so that might give me pause, except that, again, I just kind of trust in the creators here not to take this too far. And, you know, a lot of timelines, a lot of questions about the timeline, as we said, and the years between these two series I would think that this would probably be a sparing sort of screen time role. I mean, maybe kind of a cameo thing, maybe kind of a background thing. Another thing that makes makes me think that is that Better Call Saul plays it pretty fast and loose with the ages and appearances of actors, you know, as a prequel that takes place years before a series that has been off the air for some time. Like, Better Call Saul is definitely from the outlander school of like our protagonist just aged 20 years let's give them three gray hairs and we're good you know oh wow way to shout out claire on outlander (laughs) love that okay so in this case like it's a de-aging issue right which i'm kind of worried that if i rewatch breaking bad now which i'm interested in doing after saul ends that it'll just seem like everyone's benjamin buttoning (laughs) because they just like look more youthful than i'm used to seeing them now i will say i was watching some saul scenes specifically um as a refresher and because bob like his hair is longer right and he's a little trimmer on saul than he is on breaking bad and Mm -hmm. so like his face is a little more youthful but he doesn't look markedly younger so i think the you know the way that um they did it keeping his hair short in this series and all that it sort of makes it uh makes it work i think it works for him when you know yeah. hank strolls in or gomi or sure. you know, gus it's like okay it's a little bit of suspension yeah. of disbelief here and you know breaking bad started airing 2008 right almost 15 years ago and aaron paul is not someone about whom i would say he hasn't aged a day <laughs> so, he is 42 and yeah. jesse's supposed to be 19 when breaking bad starts so yeah it's a, it's a good thing i mean there's a lot of wig work in the series like in the flashbacks <laughs> it's kind of like the the dexter morgan approach of like let's slap a wig on michael c hall and now wow. he's young dexter so that works but yeah if we're shoehorning like substantial roles for walt and jesse in here 
you know, I would say that it could be, I mean, it could be after the timeline of Breaking Bad, except that one of those guys is no longer living at that point. So it's tough to figure exactly how this happens. You mentioned sort of this idea that you don't want Saul to just lead into Breaking Bad, that the whole existence of Saul shouldn't be oh, this is how we got here to Breaking Bad. And and they've said, they've made big sweeping statements like you'll never look at better Breaking Bad the same way again right. once we're done with Saul, et cetera. But you wrote this great piece for TheRinger.com about this idea of Saul breaking the prequel curse. And I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit, like what what you think it is that Saul accomplished um, that broke that curse. Yeah, I mean, to me, Saul is one of the best spinoffs ever. I think it's almost undeniably the best prequel ever. And I'm a tough grader when it comes to prequels. Like, I'm a very anti-prequel person, which could be because I saw Phantom Menace when I was 12 and it just disillusioned me for life. But I think there's just a, a structural problem at the heart of most prequels where, you know, when you tell a story, typically you start at the most interesting point, right? That's when you pick up. You know, we could do a prequel to this podcast episode where we're both just like looking over our notes, but it wouldn't be very interesting, right? We we should record <laughs> when we start talking. I don't know. My notes are pretty fascinating. No, your notes ben, are great. But... No shots at your notes. But usually you start at the exciting point, right? And then mm-hmm. maybe you have an ending in mind or you eventually arrive at a satisfying ending. And then you get to the end and if the IP is successful and someone wants more of it, which is a, a common situation now where we're expanding everything, everything is a universe, everything is a multiverse. And so we're inundated in prequels now, whether it's Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones or Harry Potter or whatever it is, you can only go backward in a lot of these cases. And that's a problem because you probably didn't plan to make that prequel from the start. It's just like, hey, we like this thing. The audience wants more of this thing. Let's graft a prequel onto this existing property. And that doesn't work all that often, you know, for any number of reasons. One reason is that you have sort of an inherent lack of suspense often if you just know what's going to happen. And one of the miracles of Saul is that there's so much suspense, even though we do know where a lot of these characters will end up or that they will survive. And yet we're still just on the edges of our seats, which is really a a testament to the writing of the series and the acting and all the other craft involved. But that's tough to do. And I don't know that the model for Saul is really replicable. It's like, let's have Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould. Like, let's have an incredible cast. Let's have Bob Odenkirk, who's a comedy legend, but also turns out to be a great dramatic actor and Ray Seahorn and everyone else who rounds out this cast. I don't know that this is something that other creators could look at and say, here's how you do it. Here's how you pull off a successful prequel. But Better Call Saul just somehow steered between all of those pitfalls and delivered a series that somehow incredibly stands up to the original, which just amazes me. Like if anyone was out there saying, yes, this spinoff about this crass caricature of a man who's just a supporting act in Walt and Jesse's story is going to be, you know, as high quality, as critically acclaimed as Better Call Saul. I mean, if you were out there, you should be the head of programming for some network somewhere because (laughs) I did not see that coming. There were a lot of doubters out there and understandably so. And, you know, the season finale and the series finale here will be the 63rd episode of Better Call Saul. And there were 62 episodes of Breaking Bad. And that's probably unintentional. But if that were a flex, I would have to tip my cap. Like, (laughs) we just took this as a challenge, you know? Speaking about the content on The Ringer, something that I was 
reminded of um alan siegel did a great sort of oral history of breaking yes. bad that's on this feed that our pal steve allman sort of cut together great stuff with you know brian Cranston's is on there bob odenkirk's on there peter gould is on there reese Seahorn is on there like every everyone's talking about the origins of saul and and how it got here and so hearing peter gould especially talk about their original plans uh what they thought the show was going to be right. versus what it wound up being even the the basic building blocks like the relationship between jimmy and chuck or the relationship between jimmy and kim fluctuated based on the way that the actors were playing it it's always been a, a gift of these creators vince and peter and all the people working on breaking bad their ability to sort of be very liquid when it comes to reacting to certain storyline beats that are working. Saul was only supposed to be a three character, three episode arc, you know, all that sort of stuff. And so the idea that because Michael McKean decided to play Chuck as not indulgent of his brother, but nettled by his brother, mm -hmm. we get this whole storyline with Chuck becoming sort of Jimmy's biggest enemy. And in doing so and making Jimmy so eager to please Chuck and Chuck being unwilling to see Jimmy for anything other than slipping Jimmy, you insert this great tragedy. And for Kim and Jimmy, the the dynamic that they found in those two actors, then this becomes, this is what Peter Gould says, like this becomes a tragic love story, which wasn't necessarily their original intention. Their relationship, it's so loosely defined in season one. You go back and watch and it's it's not even a will they or won't they. It's like a have they already? Have they? Like, yeah, exactly, Are they currently? Exactly. Like, who knows? Will right. they ever? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think that all the things that it became, which is this great tragedy. And, you know, the labels that get thrown around a lot in that oral history are like the idea that Bob Odenkirk, great comedian, turned this character into like a, an Arthur Miller character, a Willie mm -hmm. Loman character. And, and that tragedy, when this was supposed to be kind of like a zany antics show, is a miracle. It's incredible. And one more big picture thought along those lines. I, I wanted to ask if your experience of watching this series mirrors mine, because especially at this late stage, I'm not sure there's anything like watching Better Call Saul, because I am constantly just pulled between these seemingly conflicting feelings. Like on the one hand, the level of craftsmanship on display in every line and shot of this show. I mean, writing, directing, acting is, if not unmatched, certainly unsurpassed, I would say. So I always feel like I'm in good hands here. You know, it's like I feel none of the anxiety about the resolution of the series that I would normally feel heading into yeah. a final season. Like, will it end well? <laughs> you know, like, will I feel like my investment of time was worth it? Will they tie up that lingering plot thread from season four, right? After 10 combined seasons of Saul and Breaking Bad, like, I'm not that worried, you know? Like, Gilligan and Gould, like, they're going to land this plane somehow. And, you know, it's good to be back in this TV version of Albuquerque where we've been living in spirit for so long. So part of me is soothed by Saul. Like, I'm like Jimmy in the nail salon with the massage chair and the foot bath and a, a <laughs> cup of cucumber water, you know? Just, like, settling in to watch this cast and crew work their magic. But the other part of me knows that the fruition that will come of this will be devastating in some way, you know, whether it's because someone dies or because something even more devastating than that happens, right? Like they lose themselves, they become someone else entirely, they turn their backs yeah. on who they are. 
And yeah. so that part of me, when I'm watching this, I'm like, you know, Chuck walking down the frozen foods aisle. It's like, I can't bear to watch this. Like I'm, I'm on the point of fainting. So you have these two kind of conflicting parts of me. And I don't know that there's any other series that like delivers the contentment and just the confidence that mm. they know where they're going with the anxiety about where they have decided to go and what that will do to us psychologically. Well, there's a couple things that, that, well, first of all, first things first, I think you know cucumber waters for customers only then, so you're not allowed to have anything. <laughs> After hours. <laughs> Secondly, I think that there's a couple things that that brings to mind. First of all, that confidence that we have in them because, well, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like they landed the, the Breaking Bad plane yes. very well. And that feels like a near impossibility to do with a show that is so massive and under so much scrutiny. I know that not everyone loved the Breaking Bad finale, but I thought it was masterful. Me too. And um, it certainly doesn't have that lingering reputation that Lost Unfairly got or Game of Thrones Rightly got, etc. You know, for a huge show they tied it up really beautifully. So there's that confidence. But there's also the way in which they instill that sense of surety, despite the fact that they massively changed the show based <laughs> on how the actors played things. Right. They're so good at going back and tying things in and making it feel so intentional all along. One thing I noticed on my season one rewatch was the how often Kim is shot in shadow, not just in these final seasons, but mm -hmm. from the beginning, those famous shots of them in the parking garage right. um, of the, the light slanting. And he's just a little bit in shadow and she's fully in shadow. I don't believe this was their plan. But it goes back and you go back and it feels intentional. And then stuff like, and this is where we get to actually talk about the episodes, them bringing in the Kettlemans in this episode, bringing in season one characters that maybe we haven't thought about for a really long time. I think about the Kettlemans constantly. Oh, do you? Are you, are you forever thinking about camping in your backyard? I think that... That just makes it all feel so intentional to bring in that those season one right. references and make it feel like one cohesive story we've been watching all along with a steady hand at the tiller. Yeah. Um, how did you feel seeing your number one preoccupation, the Kettleman's, come back into the fold? <laughs> it felt great. I was glad that I also did a season one rewatch. I rewatched almost half the series like in the last week and Impressed. read a lot of recaps. I still feel kind of unprepared like <laughs> I feel like I should have gone back and binge breaking bad too like it's just it's a really rich text like there are yeah. all kinds of callbacks that unless you have watched these series obsessively you're probably not going to pick up on but yes the Kettleman's coming back or you know the thermos that has been kind of a, a recurring character in the relationship of, of Jimmy and Kim since season two I mean there are a lot of illusions here that I would imagine are lost on a lot of viewers who are like, hey, I like the show, but I haven't seen this since early 2020. And a lot has happened since then, <laughs> just like in the world. So if you haven't done like a wiki refresh, like maybe a lot of that is lost on you. That's why we have two podcasts on the Ringer uh, feed for you. Yeah, exactly. That's what we're here for. But yeah, I mean, like our colleague, Miles Surrey, he, he did a great profile of Tony Dalton last week. And in that, Gould was quoted joking about Lalo and a spinoff starring Lalo as like the cartel detective or something, which like, I'll just say, you know, Better Call Saul started with people joking about a spinoff. I spin would watch it. <laughs> I would watch so it. fast. But I'd be into uh, a family drama starring the Kettlemans. I mean, like a coach, uh -uh, Mrs. No. Coach dynamic Come here on. with these two. Defrauding the elderly in the yeah. desert for, uh, <laughs> for, for six seasons. Uh, let's start the campaign for Better Follow Lalo right now. Hashtag Better Follow Lalo. Um, um, 
But yeah, I think that the Kettlemans are such a great little treat here. I, I, unlike you, do not have a thirst to see much more of them. This episode is brought to you by Verizon. Here's the headline. If you're with Verizon or just joining Verizon, everyone can get their best phone deals. You can even get an iPhone 15 on them with any iPhone trade-in, any model, any condition, guaranteed with unlimited ultimate. Visit verizon.com to shop. $829.99, 128 gigabyte only, device payment or full retail purchase with new or upgraded smartphone line on unlimited ultimate plan, minimum $90 per month with auto pay, plus taxes and fees for 36 months required. Less $830 trade-in or promo credit applied over 36 months. Promo credit ends if eligibility requirements are no longer met. 0% APR, trade-in terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold Slurpee drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven, and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small Slurpee drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward anytime. There's a drink like this. I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores. See app for full terms. All rights reserved. Let's talk about Howard. Here's my big question for you. Howard has been this interesting figure throughout the entire series. Um, someone who is originally pitches an antagonist before I think the show makes the good case that Chuck is the real antagonist to Jimmy. Yes. Um, and Patrick Fabian is such a good job as playing him as he's like a little unctuous. He's got the like two white teeth and the hair and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. But there does seem to be like if anyone is not two faced, it might be Howard Hamlin. I feel like um, does he deserve Anything remotely near what uh, Jimmy and Kim are cooking up for him here. Yeah, his face may be bronzed. He may have spent a lot of time in the tanning booth, but like that is who he is seemingly. And the character of Howard, like also a really rich character who like we don't necessarily get to see things from his point of view so much in the series. So we see him through Kim's eyes or through Jimmy's eyes and their interpretation of his actions is always changing. So for a while, like he is the big bad who is stopping Jimmy from getting a job at HHM, right? And then we learn later it was Chuck all along. (laughs) And so Howard has been getting a bad rap. 
So there are times when he's actually looking out for our protagonists here, or at least not actively opposing them. But then there are other times where he is holding them back and he is holding them down. And he is like sentencing Kim to a season's worth of doc review, right? And she feels like she was sort of, you know, not allowed to fly freely under Howard's wing, right? So I think they both bear him grudges of like varying intensity at varying times in the series. So not saying I'm crying for Howard here necessarily, but I, I also wouldn't say he necessarily deserves this. If anyone deserves some kind of comeuppance, it's probably the people who are plotting against him here. I think he's the perfect target, though, because I think that we're not he's not like an innocent bunny that no. we're so upset. You know, like at times Walt would target people on Breaking Bad and we would just be unable to follow. I mean, actually, there are plenty of Walter White stands who will follow him anywhere. <laughs> but like, you know, there were just like some people who got caught in the crosshairs that were like, oh, my God, Walt, what are you doing here? Right. But this we're allowed to quasi root for Jimmy and Kim. We want them to, you know, we want Jimmy to get the sandpiper money. He put that case together in the first place. And we'll mm-hmm. talk about that in a second. But at the same time, he's the kind of target where you're like a little bit, but don't go too far. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we all can see that this is going to go too far, like very quickly, <laughs> probably already has, but yes. like is probably only going to get worse. The idea of Jimmy focusing on Howard is so interesting to me, The especially like how he was treating him last season with like the bowling balls and the escorts and all of the penny annie stuff that he was doing with him because it feels like jimmy and i haven't i haven't gotten into my later season rewatch so maybe i i missed a crucial key moment here but it seems to me that like so chuck dies and jimmy very explicitly like buries that and Mm -hmm. doesn't deal with it and transfers his anger and frustration with chuck and his grief on with chuck to howard um feel free to contradict me if you disagree and that i think parlays into what we might want to think about in terms of how Saul is in Breaking Bad because whatever happens with Kim and I've got like four or five decent theories cooking (laughs) on that but whatever happens is he gonna process it Mm-hmm. Or is he just going to lean into Saul and do all the shit that he does in Breaking Bad instead? You know what I mean? Given how little he's actually processing yeah. Chuck's death. Just, just what do you think? Put some gold plating around his heart and don't... And toilet. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot about this uh, monologue that Mike delivers to Jimmy in the penultimate episode of season five. The one about choices and the road that you're on. So Mike says, you know, we all make our choices and those choices, they put us on a road. Sometimes those choices seem small, but they put you on the road. You think about getting off, but eventually you're back on it. And the road we're on led us out to the desert and everything that happened there and straight back led back to where we are right now. And nothing, nothing can be done about that. I think a lot about that in terms of Jimmy's arc, because in some ways, like he's been on that road since he stole from the register at his dad's shop, right? After meeting the wolf who Mm -hmm. bilks his dad out of 10 bucks. And yet it's also tragic because it sure seems like he could have gone down different roads at various points in the series. Like Walt was always going to break bad. Like he always had Heisenberg in him. Jimmy could have avoided this seemingly. And so Chuck, you know, wasn't wrong that Jimmy would be dangerous if he had a law degree, but it also becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because Chuck treating him that way is what finally turned him, right? At least, you know, at one stage of this series. And so... 
it's hard to say whether like he was definitely leading down this road and nothing could have turned him from it or whether it was the actions of others that are really cementing that road ahead of him. So whether it's Howard, whether it's Chuck, whether it's now Kim, right, who Mm. is turning him down that road even more. I mean, that's kind of the tragedy of Jimmy and also of Kim to some extent. It's like, did they bring this out of each other? Was this in them the whole time? Did they have to meet to unlock this in each other? You know, they were clearly attracted to each other because they both had this lying inside them somewhere, maybe more dormant in Kim than in Jimmy, but this drew them to each other, I think more so than any kind of physical chemistry. So Howard, you know, maybe he's kind of the the fall guy. He's like the one that that these people are burning in effigy in their heads right now. And yeah, like, you know, Jimmy even feels a little bit bad for the Kettlemans at this stage. Like he's given them some money after Kim just destroys them. I don't think we feel bad for the Kettlemans as the audience, but I don't know that we're weeping for Howard either. So I think you're right. Well, you yeah, I, th- I think the Kettlemans and, the- and Howard... And like what Kim wants to do with the Sandpiper money, which she lays out in the season five finale, which is like fund her pro bono work. It's all incremental, right? The Kettleman's and Howard are like bad enough that maybe we don't feel too terribly for them. Or maybe Kim can tell herself that her attitude toward them is justified or in pursuit of the of the sandpiper money she's telling herself it's all justified because it's going to fund this pro bono work that I want to do mm-hmm. and that's the like the slip for Kim the slippery slope for Kim uh slipping because I think Kimmy. it yeah slipping Kimmy because I think if it if it were a huge reversal for her I mean it's the same thing happened with Walt and Heisenberg right like it's an incremental thing and and if it were a big u-turn for her character mm-hmm this would be a terrible show. So I think giving us a Howard and a Kettleman's and and this pro bono sort of veil that she drapes everything in, I think is is incremental to the kind of story that they want to tell. Yeah, because there have been so many moments in this series where Jimmy slash Saul shocked Kim in some way. I, I think back to the season four finale, I think it was, where Jimmy is delivering his reinstatement speech to the bar to try to save his law license, and he gets everyone crying, right? He brings out that letter that Chuck wrote to yes. him but then yeah. he ad libs and he goes off script and there's not a dry eye in the house including Kim's and then they get out of that room and Jimmy reveals that it was all an act and he's just like crying about how he had them all going but he also had Kim going <laughs> so she was taken in too and now she's the one shocking him right so in this episode like we see Jimmy is relieved when he looks through that restaurant window and he sees Kim with her pro bono client like mm. he smiles like okay the old Kim is still in there right and she does say that working with these underprivileged clients who she never had time to devote herself to before made this her best day at work ever and yet at the same time during this best day ever she was still finding time to scheme about Howard right so is she more excited about helping these people or about taking other people down? I mean, it's it's both, right? That's why, like, her last name, Wexler, it's like the German word Wexler, right? Someone who changes or, or switches. And Kim is always kind of hopping from one side of that line to another and having to fight her worst impulses. But now 
she seems to be giving in and, and even driving Jimmy to some extent. Ben, you said a lot of great things in the short time that I've known you, but Wexler, Vexler, <laughs> someone who changes is my new favorite thing that you said. I thought it was you you uh, slagging off the Dexter wigs, but now now it's it's name semantics. All right, let's go. Let's hop over to the drug cartel. Talk about Lalo. Yeah. Brief refresher on the drug cartel dynamics um, is that it's the Salamancas, which is Lalo, Hector, the cousins, versus Gus and Tyrus and Mike. And Bolsa in the middle, all reporting to Don Eladio. And what's wild about that is that those are the dynamics in Breaking Bad. So nothing is going to change about these drug cartel dynamics. But much like we know the outcome of what's going to happen to Jimmy as he turns into Saul, but Kim's the real wild card. I think Nacho is the real wild card in all of this because we don't know uh, if we have a heart, we care about Nacho. Michael Mando is so good at making us care about him. So we don't know yeah. how that's all going to pan out. But Lalo is alive. Is he alive in Breaking Bad? It's a question mark. We don't know. Right. Uh, conflicting reports. But um, Tony Dalton is here to to delight us uh, in, in further in this season. We got a listener, Carrie, wrote in and said, uh, when that car, speaking about the car at the very end of the episode that follows uh, Jimmy and Kim away from the Kettleman's. When the car followed behind Saul and Kim, I yelled, no, that's Lalo. I'm very scared yet excited and anxious for the rest of the season. Chris and I talked about this on The Watch. I was certain that it was Lalo. I've since been told by people who know <laughs> that it is not Lalo and I should have listened to Chris that Lalo was going south, <laughs> right. not north. I haven't seen any further, so I don't know who it is. All I know is that I've been told by people who know that it is not Lalo. Yeah, I didn't I didn't read this as, as Lalo initially because we do see him driving away from the border. Yeah. I mean, that said, like Lalo has been known to change course and change direction and show up in places where he's not expected. Might as well be named Vexler, right? <laughs> but yeah, one does not simply walk into New Mexico. Right? <laughs> so like you got to cross the border. Somehow he can't just drive across. So I, I assumed that that car... Maybe it's someone working for Gus. You know, Gus and Mike, I mean, they know about Lalo's relationship with Jimmy, right? And and also Kim. I mean, Mike was eavesdropping on that call in that incredible scene, you know, when Lalo confronts Jimmy and Kim. So maybe they know, hey, if, if Lalo does come back across the border, we have the sniper set up in case he decides to attack us. But if he goes another route, then maybe he uh, go he goes and consults with his legal team. So we'll have someone tail them. I don't know. It could be that. It could be some other character from season one we haven't thought about for several years. <laughs> Who knows? Like, there's no way of telling. Oh, but. my God. It's the, like, proprietor of the nail salon or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> of course. I was trolling through the Better Call Saul Reddit, a fantastic place to be. Very smart people in there. Um, and someone was pointing out that... In the scene where Lalo calls Hector and when he calls Casa Tranquila and he says, sorry, that was a terrible American accent on that word. Uh, <laughs> he says, Buenos Aires Recepcion. And the receptionist says, I'm sorry, let me get someone who speaks Spanish. And then he switches to English to tell her no problem. He just needs to talk to Hector. That's a way for Lalo to find out that the person who's handing the phone to Hector does not understand Spanish. And right. so that he could like speak freely uh, in Spanish and the person would And it's just like. 12 layers deep on the Lalo deviousness, which is yeah. why hashtag better follow Lalo would be a great show to watch. Like, you know, he's always got 90 games yeah. running. Do you have any thoughts and theories about what he's doing? He needs proof for Hector about <laughs> yeah. the hit that he knows in his heart of hearts that Gus 
you know, arrange his hit. Do you have any thoughts or feelings about where he's going if he's going south? I do. Can I just say something about this scene, the conversation between Lalo and Hector? Yeah. Can the cartel not do better than the bell? Like, <laughs> come on. Like, Stephen Hawking yeah. had his, like, computerized voice system on his, like, Apple II in the 80s. Like, the cartel can't spare a sliver of that mountain of Salamanca cash where they just like the cousins pull that seven million bucks for Lalo's bail money without like <laughs> signing it out or anything. Yeah. They can't like take a wad from there to get Hector a more efficient communication method here. Like time is of the essence, guys. Like the spelling method is not expedient. I'm just saying like <laughs> Lalo, nice of him to bring the bell. Nice of him to like, you know, pour rum in, in Hector's insurer or whatever. But like, let's. let's <laughs> <laughs> upgrade the communication method anyway that's been on my mind for a while okay. Lalo is a smart guy like he's been grooming this guy as his corpse right for like who knows how long with the yeah. dental records and the facial hair and everything and he has like you know no conscience when it comes to what he will do and, and whom he will kill to get his way it's like when we see him in the courtroom and his fake family's there and the family of the poor travel wire guy who he killed by like you know dropping from the ceiling suddenly like he just grunts he doesn't care like he's, he's not bothered by this and so I would think that he is on Nacho's tail here right I mean everyone is at this point but if Lalo can get to Nacho if he can make him talk and force some sort of confession that would be a form of proof I mean I'm worried about Nacho <laughs> for many reasons one reason being that if you go back and watch the first scene where Lalo meets Nacho and he's making him tacos at the restaurant he says, you're going to die, you know, and he says it in that smiling, joking way, like these tacos are going to be so good that they're going to kill you. <laughs> but this could be like, a, you know, Obi-Wan, like, I have a feeling you're going to be the death of me kind of line. Like, maybe this is a bit of foreshadowing, right? So that's why I'm worried about Lalo tracking down Nacho. And to be fair, like, I get where Gus is coming from in all of this because Gus is wrestling with, or at least Mike is trying to make Gus wrestle with, how to handle Nacho here and whether to reward him for his faithfulness to Gus at least. But Nacho is always looking out for himself, right? I mean, he's a survivor, as and he demonstrates in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. And he's betrayed everyone he's worked for. I mean, Tuco, Hector, Lalo, right? Like, these are all bad dudes, but so is Gus. So if I were Gus, I would not want Nacho working for me either. I will just say that much. Well, let's talk about Nacho for a second. So, I mean, and I should say, if you rewatch that season five finale, it's so personal for Lalo, right? Because it's not just like a, a hit on himself. He had this home filled with like lovely people whom he thought, you know, like an old right. abuela type and like all this sort he of stuff. That to, he says to Hector on the phone, like they came to my house, my house, my home, Elaine. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that Nacho insinuated himself there and the fact that like, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure there's some wounded pride for Lalo here in terms of like he's the one who brought the rat into his house and got his family killed. But also there's that moment in the season five finale when he's getting the <laughs> one of the assassins to call and report that he's dead. You know what I mean? And he looks over at the bottle of tequila that he was sharing with Nacho by the fire. And he, he knows yeah. who opened the door. And, and there's like a personal hurt there. 
um, because he was like really embracing Nacho. So, okay, so let's talk about Nacho, who's in a lot of danger. We got an email from Jonathan, who <laughs> is sort of responding to this conversation we had around the safe, the, the stuff that happens with the safe. Chris and I talked mm-hmm. about it. Jonathan says, help me understand why did they go through the trouble to switch the safe? Was that to frame Nacho, which is what it sounded like from your podcast? If so, shouldn't Gus be worried about Nacho turning on him and giving him up if caught? It just doesn't make any sense. Here's the answer from Peter Gould to Entertainment Weekly that should hopefully clear things up. I still think it's a little unnecessarily complicated, but here's what Peter Gold said. He says they wanted him, meaning Nacho, <laughs> waiting in the motel where the cousins are going to show up and Nacho catches on just moments before. If he had caught on just 45 minutes later, the cousins would have grabbed him and he'd be tortured and dead. That's why they, meaning um, Gus, etc., give Nacho the gun because the real setup is mm-hmm. hoping that he's going to be trapped in a firefight with the cousins and one way or another, Nacho will be killed in the action. So they were hope. It seems like a messy plan for Gus to just hope that Nacho dies in a fire, uh, like in a shootout in the motel. Yeah. Um, but that, according to Peter Gold, was was the plan. Frame Nacho, have him go out in a blaze of glory. What complicates everything, of course, is the fact that Lalo's still alive. And we're going to talk about how Gus knows that in a second. But what what did you think of all the, the safe switching and, and the document planting, et cetera? It's, it's a bit Baroque. I, I will admit to watching that scene multiple times to figure out exactly all the intricacies of what was going on there. But I think, you know, it's, I guess, a risk for Gus to take that, you know, you don't bet on the cousins to take the nonviolent <laughs> route or like the non-lethal route. Like generally they are coming in, but you would understand why the Salamancas would want to capture Nacho and talk to him as well. And if that happens, then Gus is a goner too, which is why like he's feeling the strain in this episode. Like the facade of his face, that great Junko Esposito face that, you know, never cracks. I mean, you can still see the strain with multiple characters here, really, in this episode, because we see Jimmy slip up, right, and give the prosecutors Lalo's name. And normally, Jimmy's got the gift mm-hmm. of gab, right? He can talk himself out of trouble. Here, he is potentially talking himself into trouble. But you also see Gus break a glass, right? I mean, breaking a glass in case of emergency. <laughs> like, that is what is happening here. And yeah, he's still cool enough to sweep up the glass with his bare hands without sticking himself with a shard or anything. But he is normally so meticulous and so cleanly that he would not be the one breaking this glass. So you can see that this is getting to him, too. And <laughs> small wonder, because, like, he's kind of out on a limb here. So you have masterful sort of frame compositions in the show. Um, one that I think is incredible is in the scene where Gus and uh, Juan go to talk to Hector. We get an upshot as Hector reaches out his hand to shake Gus's hand in an active piece. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> we see his hand obscuring the half of Gus Fring's face that I guess, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched Breaking Bad, Hector will be directly <laughs> responsible for blowing off in one of the greatest, yes. uh, you know, death scenes in all of TV history on Breaking Bad. So like the hand is covering the half of Gus's face that's going to be blown off. Ugh, just uh, now I just want to go rewatch that episode. Um, mm-hmm. That's why the bell has to be there, Ben, for, for that incredible moment. Um, but, but one of our <laughs> listeners, David, wrote in and said, I wondered how did Gus arrive at the conclusion Lalo lives after the meeting with Hector and Bolsa. I can't tell if I missed something. I just think the fact that Hector was trying to play it so nice to, you know, throw off suspicion 
pinged Gus's suspicion. The fact mm-hmm. that Hector was being conciliatory made Gus think, oh, shit, Lalo's alive because Hector wouldn't be this nice to me if Lalo were actually dead. Do you have another any other interpretation of that? Yeah, the, the shadow, the hand thing, which arguably a bit heavy handed, so to speak, <laughs> perhaps. And I don't know. Is, I, li- uh, I like it when they get a little like, yeah, it's, it's over not the, top. the first allusion to that scene in Saul, I think. But I think more than just playing nice, it's the fact that Hector looks Gus in the eye which I believe only happens once in Breaking Bad, and that's when he's about to blow him up because Mm. Hector never looks at Gus. I mean, they have history here where, like, Hector made Gus look at Max after he killed him, right, that started this whole vendetta and this revenge story. If you look at Breaking Bad, and I I think better call Saul up to this point, like, Hector is always slouched. He's looking down. You know, he won't meet Gus's eye. The one time he does is when he knows he has him and he's about to blow him up. He's about to detonate that bomb. And here he thinks he has him too, right? Because he thinks Lalo's on the way or he's going to bring proof to the Salamancas. So he thinks he has Gus dead to rights. He's wrong. But this is another little bit of foreshadowing of, I think, Gus's demise to come years hence. All right. uh, Let us talk about Mike. I don't know. I don't have a ton to say about Mike in these episodes. There's just some like bigger picture questions still hanging over Mike of like, how does he go from here to his relationship with Gus and Breaking Bad uh, Mm -hmm. and his relationship with Saul and Breaking Bad? Um one theory I've seen floating around is that it's going to be Mike who actually killed, like, because as you say, the, that duality, that character stick, uh, either or nature of everyone for Mike in terms of the, the pop up of it all. He has this softness for Nacho. Like when we meet Mike at the beginning of Better Call Saul, he is actively mourning his son who he mm-hmm. feels responsible for his death. And so there has been like a little bit of a transference of those protective emotions over to Nacho, right? Mm-hmm. And so we see him set Nacho up in this episode though, but protecting his dad, you know, so there there's some there's some push and pull here with Mike. Will Mike be the one to kill Nacho, thus cementing his bond with Gus, or will Gus give Nacho clemency thus earning Mike's loyalty forever. What do you think is feels more likely? Yeah, there's a pattern in the show of like speaking truth to power and that paying off for characters like, you know, you're dismissed by someone and then you turn around and you stand up to them. It's like when Kim thought after the Tukum Carey debacle that uh, Mesa Verde was going to let go of Schweikert and Coakley, like she turns around, she goes back to Kevin's office and she like gives him a dressing down where she says like, actually, this was your fault. And then she kind of does that later on in the series to Howard, who's kind of blaming her for like exposing Chuck's condition. And she's like, you're the one who was hiding this all along. So this could be a case too where, you know, Mike, he's he looks like he's about to leave, like he's been told, you know, Gus gives the order to bring Nacho's dad. And Mike turns around and he locks the door and he says, like, no, you shouldn't do this. This is not gonna go the way that you think it's gonna go. It could go in the way that Mike is ultimately the one delivering Gus's justice, which he has done before, right? I mean, we saw him do this with Werner Ziegler, right? Yeah. And that clearly pained Mike. Like, they were friends. And Mike has a kind of code, you know? Like, it's uh, blurry at times, but... (laughs) 
there are things that he won't do or at least doesn't want to do, right? Like he was a lawman for a long time before he became a lawbreaker. So he doesn't want to kill Nacho, and I hope for his sake that he won't be the one to deliver this. But maybe standing up to Gus in this way, advocating for Nacho, maybe that is something that earns Mike more trust and more respect from Gus, right? I'm I'm really curious to see how it goes. And I'm really curious. I mean, Mike was originally introduced as sort of the second protagonist of the show. And I think he's been edged out by our interest in Kim and the flashiness of Lalo and stuff like that. So I'm really interested and hopeful because Jonathan Banks is so good. And and like given everything they gave to him in season one, and I was like, so I was so sure he's going to win the Emmy in season one. Like I would love for him to be given something really meaty to play uh, in this final season. So here's hoping. All right. So the last people we need to talk about, I'm just going to, let's talk about them together. Jimmy and Kim slash Saul. Let's talk about them all together. Let me let me run through our our operating theories of what might happen to Kim Wexler. Obviously, we care about we are invested in Kim's well-being. Kim Wexler lives at gmail.com being the email address that we put forth for this podcast. We got an email from listener Bernie who says, I'm starting a GoFundMe for Kim's trip to best quality vacuum. You in <laughs> the email that he gave us is Kim needs a new dust filter for her Hoover, Hoover Max extract pressure pro model 60 at gmail.com. Uh, Bernie says we're relying on that ringer verse bump to really get the message out. So uh, I'm invested in Kim surviving all this. There's been an interesting growth in the Better Call Saul fandom, a lingering, I think, sentiment from the Breaking Bad fandom that is wanting to see Kim as the ultimate villain of this, of her betraying Jimmy. Mm -hmm. There's this popular Kim long con theory that she's been working a long con the whole time, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I think it's very clear from the way all the actors are playing it and all the writers are writing it that like Kim loves Jimmy. She yeah. absolutely does. It would have to be a really long con. Like they go back to the mail room. Like <laughs> But there's a couple options here. Kim Kim dies. That's been a prevalent question. Mm-hmm. Kim does take her vacuum exit before breaking bad. Something she crosses a line so bad that she needs to be disappeared. And that's how Saul knows about the the vacuum uh, exit strategy in the first place, because Kim went through it. Uh, she's alive and well and pulling the strings Lady Macbeth style of Saul Goodman <laughs> in Breaking Bad, that she's just been there all along speaking into the Bluetooth device that he has in his ear uh, at, at most times. The way I see it, and, and Days of Wise and Roses is a really good sort of uh, blueprint for this, is... I feel like she's going to cross a line no matter what Kim is going to cross a line, a line that we would not want for her to cross because we care about her mm-hmm. and Jimmy will feel ultimately responsible for that. And that will break him so deeply that that's how we get Saul and that he's only really grappling with it as Jean. So I don't think it's like her betraying him. I think it's her doing something and whether that results in her death or her disappearing or whatever it is, it results in him losing her. That that brokenness is what he's carrying into Breaking Bad. What, what's your gut instinct on this? Yeah, I mean, in the season five finale, when Jimmy's at Mike's house and he says, if anything happens to her, I can't do this. I can't. You know, he's like speaking for all of us in yeah, that moment. Yeah. But now 
I'm not just worried about whether Kim will die. I'm worried about whether we'll even want her to live by the time this thing is over. Or like, will we even recognize her? Will we think she deserves to live? Or will she do something so heinous that, you know, she'll have it coming to her, basically? And I like your theory about some kind of break between these two characters really forcing the final transition between Jimmy and Saul because, like, something dramatic and significant has to happen here in pretty short order. I mean, there could be a time jump, I suppose, at some point in the season, which we have seen, I think, in season four there was one. So that could happen. But, like, right now, as we resume here, Jimmy is further away from being Saul than yeah. he's been for a while, right? Like, yeah. he's the one who wants to stick, stay on the straight and narrow more so than Kim. So there has to be something that pushes him over that line and pushes him over so irrevocably that he becomes the Saul that we see in Breaking Bad. Though I do like the idea because of the quote you read earlier about how we'll never watch Breaking Bad the same way. That kind of makes me think like maybe there is some kind of, you know, invisible hand of Kim who is like guiding those events and we will be clued into that now and we will watch things differently because if it's just about the fact that we know Jimmy slash Saul's backstory now like maybe we'll watch those scenes differently but would that force a, a total reinterpretation of those events I don't know so to me it seems like maybe there has to be something more significant there but you know, will there be like a reunion between these two in the Gene Takovic timeline? If, yeah. if, you know, if Kim just skipped town or something, they come back together. I mean, that's another thing I'm wondering about, obviously, is like the ultimate end for Jimmy slash Saul slash Gene, right? Like, will there be some form of redemption here? Because like, We've been with Jimmy for so long now. We've watched him every step of the way. We've seen how he turned into Saul and how he was pushed along that path. And we sympathize with him, even though he's done lots of terrible things. Like, I think if this series ended with him, like, bleeding out on the mall floor while, like, smoke on the water plays or something, you know, like, <laughs> we'd feel like, okay, we've seen this before, right, with Walt slash Heisenberg. But yeah. also, like... We've seen that sort of ending for so many characters in the, like, white male anti-hero era of TV that Saul kind of links us back to through its connection with Breaking Bad. I mean, whether it's Tony Soprano or whether it's Walt or whether it's Dexter Morgan, like, you know, things catch up with them at the end and they pay a price. And so I wonder whether they'll go in a different direction with Saul slash Jimmy. I mean, maybe that's that's exactly what I wanted to to mention. If you look at the Breaking Bad finale as sort of um, our guidepost here for the way in which Vince and Peter think about what a character deserves, the idea that like Walt dies and not only dies, but dies and stops by Skylar's to tell her. It was me all along. <laughs> like, I, I I did it for me. My justification for doing it for my family, just sort of like Kim's justification for doing it for pro bono, was bullshit. Really, I did it for myself. Right. The fact that he dies and Jesse lives and escapes, I think that tells us something about, like, so the, but the question that we don't know the answer to is, do they view Jimmy Saul as someone, as a Jesse or as a Walt. Right. And we should remember right. like where we met Saul in Breaking Bad in season two, episode eight. He's kidnapped by Walt and Jesse and he's in the desert <laughs> right before he becomes their lawyer. And he says, uh, basically like Badger has been arrested. Uh, Badger is selling drugs for them. They're worried that Badger's going to expose them to the DEA. 
Saul is acting as Badger's lawyer. And so they're trying to make sure that Badger doesn't doesn't snitch on them. And so he says his solution that Saul offers here is, why don't you just kill Badger? I mean, follow me, guys. You got mosquitoes buzzing around, biting you on the ass. Why don't you go running for the mosquito? You don't go running for the gunning for the mosquitoes attorney. You go grab a fly swatter, so to speak. I mean, all due respect, do I have to spell this out for you? So how do we get from Jimmy to Saul in season two, episode eight of Breaking Bad, who's saying kill Badger, Badger, who's like a a soft dummy and doesn't deserve to die. Right. right? right. Um, that's the big question of this whole, this whole series has to answer. How do we get here? You know, that's the only thing that makes me like the long con theory. It's like, <laughs> that would be the ultimate betrayal that would just send Jimmy <laughs> over the edge. Right. It, it has to be something really yeah. that like makes him snap in that sense. And I will say that like, I would guess that the rest of the season, not going to be a lot of lighthearted hijinks, you know, it's going to be like maybe a, a tough watch at times, but like Saul is never really like a bad hang. Like even when you're on the edge of your seat, it's just so well-crafted that it kind of carries you along. And I love that in this episode, in, in these episodes, we went from Mike agonizing over Nacho to that country club scene that's like straight out of Curb. It's like so extremely fun. like Larry David energy yeah. out of Odenkirk here. And so like that mix of like drama and comedy, which, you know, I know that the creators at some point said that like one of their misgivings about making this a half hour comedy was that they don't feel like they have the comedy chops to yeah. play in that space. Like, yeah. They're funny for a drama, basically, is what they think. And I think they might be selling themselves short here because, you know, these shows are hilarious at times. But it is true that, like, when you're going from the heaviest material of all time to something more lighthearted to, you know, Chicago sunroofs and, like, cobblers, (laughs) (laughs) like, that stuff definitely plays up, I think, when juxtaposed with that other stuff. So we got to see, like, one more moment here. And, And granted, this is, like, part of the descent of Jimmy and Kim and like going to the dark side and everything, but also it's kind of like madcap, you know, Odenkirk getting to just like showcase his comedy chops here. So this was a lot of fun too. Like a couple things are at play here. One, uh, that that Peter Gould quote is in Alan Siegel's great oral history podcast. I really do recommend people listen to it. Um, And I had the same reaction you did where I was like, you're selling yourself short, buddy. (laughs) But also, yeah, they've cast these great comedic actors, you know, like Bob's concern is that he was not enough of a dramatic actor to hold down an hour-long drama as a leading man but he is obviously proven more than capable cranston was obviously a comedian before you know he became walter white he was the dad of malcolm in the middle or like elaine's boyfriend on seinfeld like that's who brian cranston was michael mckean of course is like a comedian you know what i mean so like uh the genius of casting these comedians to to do these heavy dramatic lifts uh is is fantastic but yeah also and i think i talked to chris about this a little bit but also i feel like the point of those really fun grifty scenes are to make us complicit to give us a taste of what Kim is being seduced by and right. what, what Jimmy can't get away from, right? Exactly, It's, it's right. fun, yeah. right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, we want to crack open the tequila too. Go yeah. along for the ride. <laughs> also, you know, the season five finale, Jimmy says to Kim, am I bad for you, right? Which like, yeah. first of all, a little late to be asking that question probably at that point. But now the question is like, who's bad for whom, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a mutual thing, but we understand now that Kim is kind of the architect of Saul Goodman, right? I mean, she designs his office from Breaking Bad. She recommends his ride. You know, Saul Goodman can't drive a Ford. So, like, she is the mastermind here. And whether that masterminding persists into the timeline of Breaking Bad or not, 
she is clearly the one. I, I love that. The the scene in the restaurant where she's talking about all those details and the way in which that scene is juxtaposed with her talking. I originally saw them as separate, but I was reading some people's interpretation of the scene. The, the scene where she's talking about her pro bono client who was a poor kid who got swept up in something like a rich kid was doing uh, and he got caught because he was mm-hmm. driving the car and the rich kid gets the limousine lawyer and, and the poor kid gets whatever he can get and her sense of wounded justice around that, this the the class-inspired frustration and the, and the chip on her shoulder that she takes with her as someone who had the mom that she had and had to work her way up like tooth and nail from the mailroom against someone like Howard who is like, you know, silver... Uh, poster child for silver spoon you know and so that fueling her and maybe inspiring some of that sort of like we need to get the the bling associated with Saul goodman like maybe there is (laughs) it's not it's not quite out and out greed again the writers do this great job of mixing that like gold toilet mentality in with this like very understandable and relatable chip on your shoulder i had to crawl like claw my way here yeah it's it's always a blend of both and that's i mean this series constantly plays with which one is ascendant right like which side of their nature has the high ground and again we know where it's going at least for one of these characters but this relationship like i don't know that we can call them like the otp i mean it's a it's a fraught relationship but it's one of the best in TV. I mean, just the the way that it was so undefined at first that it was allowed to breathe and yeah. grow and find its true nature. And now that it's become this tragedy where these characters care each other, care about each other, and yet they're leading themselves down this dark path. I mean, it is devastating stuff, you know, or I anticipate that it will be by the time that it's all said and done. Two last things before we wrap up. Number one, Peter Gould told Entertainment Weekly that his one word description of episode three was shattering, shattering, Ben. You and I have not seen this episode yet, but oh, my God. I hope that just means literally like something literally breaks. Then we can all like laugh. But I think it's Gus breaks yeah, the other glass. I think it's just going to yeah. be our hearts and minds that are going to shatter, I guess, in episode three. <laughs> we have so many more episodes to go. Um, and then the other thing, I guess I just want to touch on the gene. We didn't see any gene in this episode, but I just wanted to like refresh it in case people forgot that um, where we left gene is he's been exposed by a taxi driver mm-hmm. who recognizes him. So he's in danger. I have a theory. I mean, I don't know if they would do this, but I feel like the summer of Saul that we're going to get the back half of the season is going to be mega gene heavy. I could be wrong. Maybe they'll just Mm -hmm. light touch gene, like touch gene all the way through. But I feel like we got to spend more time there. What do you think? Yeah, I would think so. Because for one thing, the last time we see him talking to Ed the Disappearer, he, you know, flip-flops, right? He's uh, about to request another mm-hmm. disappearance. And then he says, you know what? Not this time. I'm going to handle it myself. What so does that mean? presumably we're going to see <laughs> how he handles it, right? Exactly. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy, how are you going to slip out of this one? Uh, that is, does it for us. As I mentioned, the Prestige TV podcast feed is a lot going on. Atlanta, winning time, we crash, upcoming Barry, and then Ben and I will be back every week with our sort of like deeper dive. Uh, We really are going to rely on your thoughts and questions in in the mailbag to let us know sort of, you know, 
as I said, Chris and Andy are going to do a great job every Monday night breaking down the episode. What, how much deeper do you want us to go? What unanswered questions that they're left for you to ponder? Uh, so email yes. us at uh, Kim Vexler. No, Kim Wexler lives <laughs> at gmail.com. Chris and Andy have to talk about all of TV and there's about to be a bunch of great TV on. So we have a more limited <laughs> mandate here. Nothing but better call Saul. So we can be the house of our to their midnight boys. However, here. I have no uh, Albuquerque restaurant recommendations. So I leave that to Andy. Uh, This episode was produced by uh, Christopher Sutton, and we will see you next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.